You're listening to the Podcast Network. Listen. Learn. Evolve. Welcome, David. Glad to be here, Cameron, as always. I tell you, we, we, we need to do these shows more often, David. Um, once a month just isn't cutting it for me. I, I've been hanging out to do this show ever since we hung up from our last conversation. Well, I feel exactly the same way. It's it's uh, it's a lot of fun. I mean, what what's not to like? A, a couple of friends sitting around talking about Napoleonic history, uh, and, and I've got a glass of wine in, in one hand, and, and and I hope you have the same in the other. And and uh, it's just it's just great fun. It is great fun, and I, I was um, you know very excited for Napoleon when we left him at the end of the last show. Uh, just as a reminder for the audience, if it's been some time since you've heard episode two. Uh, where we left Napoleon, he was uh, 24 years of age. He had just architected, engineered the victory at Toulon. And when he finally got his uh, commanding officers to pay attention, he finally got a commanding officer who would listen to his strategies and because they had probably had run out of other ideas. And he gets promoted to Brigadier General. So his star is finally starting to rise. But as we're going to discover in Episode 3 didn't go completely smoothly well and and there's something i i really think we need to remind ourselves from time to time we know so much about the outline at least of napoleon's career we realize that he is just beginning his career uh, after toulon uh, this is really the 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 first time he is is noticed uh, in in the french public and in the newspapers but at 24 years old he has he has a star he, he's a brigadier general uh, this would be the capstone uh, of almost any military career then or now for most people uh, for most people if you were able to retire as a brigadier general you you really had made it to the top uh, I, I know a lot of people in the military and and darn few of them have more than one star and very very few of them even have that so so we we don't want to be too blase about the the stunning rise to, uh, that, that has taken place in Napoleon's career uh, to be at age 24 uh, already a general even given all the things we talked about last time the, the the vacancies at the top because of the revolution and so on it was still an amazing ride it was but he has a long way to go there are i think it oh, yes. stayed something like 138 generals above him in the ranks in the the french military so he's a brigadier sure. general but he's a long way from the top of the pack so we're in 1794, and it starts to go a little bit awry. Uh, obviously, at Toulon, we, I think we mentioned in the last show that he'd become friendly with Augustin Robespierre, uh, who was the younger brother of Maximilian Robespierre, one of the leader of the Jacobin movement. 
You want to tell us a little bit about the relationship between Augustine and Napoleon? Well, uh, Augustine Robespierre, of course, because he was the brother of uh, the feared uh, Maximilien Robespierre, who was essentially the the, the head of the French government, uh, had a lot of power. And, and that can be good news and bad news. If you crossed him, uh, ticked him off a little bit, you could find yourself with a one-way trip to the National Razor, uh, as they call the guillotine. On the other hand, if he liked you, then uh, everything could 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 open up for you. And and Augustine uh, Robespierre liked Napoleon, uh, felt that Napoleon was a a rare uh, commodity in the military, a true revolutionary. Uh, Napoleon had written uh, the Soupe de Bouquer that we talked about last time, which was a, a pro-revolutionary uh, track. So uh, whenever Augustine was in a position to help Napoleon, uh, he did. Uh, and so to a certain extent, Napoleon's star was, was tied to Augustine Robespierre and, and the cabal that ruled uh, France at the time. But of course, as you say, what goes up can go down. Uh, when uh, Augustine's brother gets in trouble uh, in uh, 1794, uh, then of course things are not uh, going to go well for, for Napoleon uh, either. Now, uh, before it all started to go awry, there had actually been a, a letter from Augustine to his brother Maximilian talking about Toulon and a number of other things that had happened around that time and he says in this letter I would add to the list of patriots the name of Citizen Buonaparte General in Chief of the Artillery an officer of transcendent merit he is a man who resisted Paoli's caresses and who saw his property ravaged by this traitor now being described as possessing transcendent merit was obviously very strong language and now, this comes back, as you said, to bite Napoleon on the backside after Maximilian is uh, guillotined. Robespierre, his brother, says uh, that basically he has shared the successes. I think he said, I shared his virtues and I intend to share his fate. So he got guillotined as well. Well, that's right. Of course, it isn't like he had a lot of choice. <laughs> I mean, when 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 the the uh, the, the French government uh, sort of decided it had enough of, of the terror of of the uh, the radical faction uh, that was killing even members of the revolutionary government, uh, people like Danton, you know, and others uh, who were good revolutionaries who had in fact voted uh, for the the death of Louis the Sixteenth uh, were nevertheless uh, not considered pure enough by uh, Maximilian Robespierre and and uh, Saint-Just and some of the others, uh, and, and it really got to the point where. The, 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 the other revolutionaries sat around and said, well, if we don't do something about it pretty soon, we may very well be next. And so uh, on July uh, 27th of 1794, uh, Maximilian and Augustine Robespierre, uh, Saint-Just and, and others were uh, arrested. Uh, they were uh, given a rather a quick trial of sorts, and the next day they were executed uh, at the, by the guillotine. And it's got to be said that, uh, that that this was probably a good thing, and most people in France uh, were very, very pleased to to have this sort of national nightmare come to an end. However, 
it's also true that there was a backlash that you have an awful lot of people saying, well, now we're going to go after anyone who was associated with the Robespierre brothers, with the terror, and so on. And unfortunately for Napoleon, uh, there's really kind of good news and bad news. The, the, the bad news is that he is placed under some suspicion. He was actually accused of of having a secret mission to Genoa to commit treason of some kind, a very vague charge, and of wanting to rebuild a prison in the port city of Marseille. Uh, there was nothing to this, but he was thrown in for a fortnight into the uh, prison at the Cap Antibes. Now, this is the good news. I said the bad news was he was under suspicion. The good news, he was a really long way from Paris. Had he been in Paris, I wouldn't be a bit surprised that, that within days he would have found himself facing the same fate as the Robespierre's. But he was in, in the Cap d'Antibes on the coast uh, uh, of the Mediterranean, and he had people who were working in his behalf, uh, including, of course, uh, Salicetti, uh, who may have been working on his behalf and, and may have been behind some of the charges. And then there's a theory that Salicetti deliberately brought the charges against Napoleon so that he could then be uh, found innocent and, and thus be purified from any further action. No one really seems to know exactly what the story is, but what we do know is that Napoleon uh, sits in this uh, Jail, this this prison at the the Chateau d'Antibes, as it was called, but it was hardly a chateau. Uh, and and while he's there, he, he's really very interesting. He he takes it all in stride. He's very calm and cool. Uh, his uh, his friend uh, Junot uh, attempts to intercede in his behalf, and and uh, Napoleon writes him. You know, when I examine it, that conscience is calm. So, so do nothing. Uh, you, you don't have to worry about me. Uh, my own conscience is the tribunal before which I bring my conduct. Uh, and he says, I've got a clear conscience, therefore they will find me uh, innocent. Uh, he does write in his own defense. Uh, he says uh, in, in one letter, you have caused me to be arrested. I have been dishonored without trial. Or rather, I have been tried without being heard. Well, of course, he's he's being heard by virtue of this letter. Uh, he says, since the commencement of the revolution, I have not seen fighting. I have not been seen fighting against domestic enemies or as a soldier fighting against foreigners. I have sacrificed living in my departement. I have abandoned my property. I have lost all for the republic. So he writes this spirited letter. Uh, and he also, while he's at it, uh, works on plans for an invasion of Italy to drive the, the Austrians out of Italy, uh, which is something that will recur uh, several times uh, throughout his, his career. Uh, so he's really so convinced that he's going to be taken care of uh, and found innocent that he's already working on what he hopes will be his next assignment. And he's correct. Uh, the the charges are in fact ultimately uh, dropped, uh, and he is released from the Chateau d'Antibes. But his problems aren't over. Uh, he has as War Minister now uh, Aubrey. Aubrey, you know, is still suspicious of Napoleon because of 
his relationship with the Robespierres and basically has Napoleon's name struck off the list of artillery officers, uh, officers and is transferred for the infantry, which, you know, for somebody with Napoleon's training and success <coughs> in the artillery, is obviously, at the very least, a major insult. Oh, it is, it is definitely an insult. And it's probably designed to make him resign. Now, I know some... Uh, modern-day big corporations that follow the same sort of practice. You know, if they if they don't have the uh, wherewithal to actually fire you, they'll just uh, put you on special assignment in a job that they hope is so insulting and boring to you that you will quit <laughs> out of out of disgust and move on. But he doesn't do that. He takes two months sick leave and goes right, to but, Paris. Well, but there's 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 more to it than that, unfortunately, and this is probably extremely critical to to understanding uh, a number of things about Napoleon. You know, first of all, you're, uh, Cameron, you're exactly right. He's he's given the command of a brigade. Uh, he is, after all, a brigadier general, uh, and and it's a, it's an infantry brigade, and this is a an insult. Uh, even in the modern military, the various branches have uh, their 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 pride and. And certain branches are considered to be uh, more elite than other branches. And, and in the French army, as in many armies, artillery was one of the really elite uh, branches. Whereas the infantry, uh, the grunts, as we might call them, uh, is anything but e- elite uh, in, in the French army. So it's a big insult. But, but worse than that is that he was uh, sent uh, to, uh, or he was ordered to be sent to the uh, Vendée, which is a region in, 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 in the western uh, part of, of France, west-central France, which was very, very Catholic, uh, very anti-revolutionary, uh, and in fact, uh, there was an uprising uh, that was taking place against the revolution by members of the Vendée. Uh, you will see this throughout uh, this whole period, uh, at, at the end of Napoleon's career, when he comes back for the Hundred Days, he has the same issue. You've got uprisings in the Vendée. So Napoleon is sent with his brigade, or he's ordered to be to, to go to the Vendée to help put down uh, this this uprising. Well, the problem, of course, is that this will involve shooting uh, French citizens, and Napoleon realizes that there's not a whole lot of future in being put into a position where you have to kill some of your own uh, people, even if they are uh, anti-revolutionary, counter-revolutionary. So he decides to do what you and I might do for a day or two. Uh, He calls in sick. He says, uh, well, that's it. I'm I'm going to uh, take some time off. But uh, that doesn't last for too long. So he, he goes to Paris, as you say, with his friend uh, Marmont and his, now his secretary, the former Sergeant uh, Junot. And he wants to get a change uh, of, of orders. Uh, that doesn't uh, work out. So he takes more leave. And in, in fact, uh, uh, he's he's supposedly sick for some time uh, but he's actually in Paris going to operas, going to scholarly lectures and and doing other kinds of things uh, while waiting for better things to happen. 
Now, what interests me about this is, uh, on one hand, he's a 24-year-old man uh, with some success. Uh, one might suggest he's probably made a little bit of money in his uh, pay rise as a Brigadier General. He's enjoying the good life. But for a man who was so constantly committed with planning and activity and is, you know, by definition, the, the man of action, to take two months off seems like an incredibly uh, long amount of time for a person of Napoleon's personality. And for the letters of that period, it, it's hard to really tell what was going through his mind. In some of the letters, he seems to be quite enjoying himself. His younger brother, Louis, comes to visit. He's, as you say, he's hanging out with Junot and Maman. But on the other hand, he, he can also sound a little bit depressed, a little bit lost. You know, he, he's not really sure where he's going at this particular point in time. And it really does seem like one of those rare moments of indecision and of, you know, a, a little bit of cloud surrounding his destiny or his star, which doesn't last for very long, though. Well, well, there, the, to some extent, I agree with you. Uh, clearly, his career is floundering, and he's probably trying to figure out what is the, the, the best way to, to uh, resurrect what was at one time so promising and, and bearing in mind he is still a general. He, he may have a hundred and some ahead of him, but he is a heck of a lot more behind him. Uh, but like I say, he, he's a, a real intellect. And during this period of time, he begins to be seen around, time, around town at various scholarly meetings, at some of the salons, and so on. He is, after all, a, a young uh, general, probably looking reasonably dashing in his, in his uh, uniform. Uh, and he, he looks at other alternatives. For example, he actually applies... And whether this is a, a, a move based on despondency, as, as some believe, or whether it's uh, based on expediency uh, or, or what, he actually applies to the war office to be sent as an artillery advisor uh, to the Sultan of Turkey. Now, that may seem a little bizarre uh, that Napoleon Bonaparte would want to to go all the way to Turkey and, and take a staff of five or six of his officer friends with him. Uh, but in fact, uh, had the right person uh, gotten that that request and processed it, it might very well have taken place. And of course, as, as, as I've said in, in several of my books, and, and, and as anyone can imagine, uh, the the impact on history of Napoleon being sent to to uh, Turkey at this period of time rather than staying in, in, in Paris uh, is, is, is really mind-boggling. Uh, but the thing gets lost in the shuffle. Uh, it doesn't happen. And uh, eventually, uh, Louis Gustave uh, Le Dulcet, uh, who uh, it, it becomes the new minister of war, uh, takes over, and Napoleon says, Aha! I've got a new guy there. Maybe he will listen. So he goes to see uh, La Doucette, uh and presents him the plans of his invasion of Italy, uh, designed again to throw the Austrians out uh, of northern Italy. Uh, the very plans he had worked on while he was imprisoned at the Chateau d'Antibes, I, I, I must remind you. Uh, and La Doucette says, you know, this guy's pretty smart. The last thing we want to do is take a smart guy like this, put him in the infantry, and send him out as cannon fodder at the Vendee. So he uh, assigns Napoleon to the Bureau Topographique, the, the Topographical Bureau, maps. Uh, 
Uh, he's going to be sitting there looking at maps, working with maps, planning campaigns with maps, uh, exactly the kind of thing that a person of Napoleon's uh, intellect and ability would want to do. And it's going to keep him in Paris. It's going to keep him where the action is, uh, where all of the social life is, where the top politicians are, uh, as we'll probably get into next week or next month, whenever we do this, uh, where Josephine is. Uh, and he spends an awful lot of time making the social rounds, going to the salons. Uh, it's during this period that he probably meets Josephine. Uh, and uh, while he would love to be more in the action, it's still overall a pretty good assignment and a heck of a lot better than an infantry brigade in the Vendée. And obviously there's a lot of things going on in Paris around this time too. Obviously we've seen the end of the Jacobin rule by Maximilian. We now have the Committee for Public Safety and, you know, that's not going smoothly as well. So there's a lot of political change happening in Paris at the time. But I love this description. As you mentioned, uh, Napoleon was sent to the new Minister of War, Pontecoulant, who describes him as a young man of pale and yellowish complexion, grave and bent over, looking sickly and frail. Hardly the image that we have of Napoleon from the uh, more romantic paintings of Louis David, etc., that came out uh, during his reign as First Consul and Emperor. Well, sure, that's exactly right. But if you if you read, and we talked about this uh, before, uh, when Napoleon was in school, he was he was sickly, he was thin, uh, largely didn't have very much money uh, for for food and so on. Uh, and in his earlier uh, life, he was quite thin. Uh, Josephine um, makes comments about that. We often see him uh, later when he's gained a bit of weight, as do we all. Uh, and and he fills out first fills out quite nicely and then later gets gets you know a little plump and uh, uh, that's the image that I think most people have but if you look even some of the period engravings like some of the material I have in my collection if you look at them you know you can see he's really quite thin uh, before the show you and I were discussing the the uh, little pen and ink drawing on vellum that that I have from 1796 uh, and 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 you can see he's he's a lot thinner. In, in that drawing, that, then you see him in the uh, Jacques-Louis David uh, paintings and the Girard paintings and so on. I also like this quote from a letter that he wrote to Joseph, I think, around about this period, where he says, As for me, I'm not especially attached to things. I approach life without grasping for it. I find myself often in the mood one enters on the eve of battle, when it would be foolish to be anxious. Everything makes me indifferent to fate or destiny. It sounds like a very zen, calm state of mind. He's in the moment. He's <laughs> waiting to see what happens, not fearing for the future, not uh, you know, not anxious about the future. He's uh, in the moment, and you know what really uh, makes a makes a very good strategist in the heat of battle. You know, somebody who's very cool and waiting to see where the cards fall before he uh, makes a decision where he's going to go. Well, I think that's right. I think it also is a reflection of the fact that Napoleon has a pretty fair amount of what we would call self-confidence. I think he feels that if he just keeps at it and doesn't blow his cool, that his luck and his talent 
will carry him through. And of course, he's he's got some good examples of that already in his career. He's he's had things bounce his way very nicely, and I think he probably uh, has this sense of destiny, if you will. Uh, he he gives uh, you know Josephine the this, this gift you know inscribed engraved to destiny, and, and I think he's beginning. He doesn't yet really have it all there. He doesn't really claim, at least, to see himself as being great in, until the campaign in Italy and, and the uh, bridge at Lodi. But, but I think he's beginning to get this sense that things are going to bounce his way. The other quote I like from one of his letters of this period is, the future is a matter of contempt for the man of courage. I like that. <laughs> yes, so anyway, yes. So this is the period that, you know, is uh, the end of the Robespierre's Jacobin period is known as Thermidor. We, and coming out of the end of this, as I mentioned, there's a lot of political goings-on in Paris. There's a convention. They have renounced the guillotine. They decide that they're going to create a new constitution, dissolve the Committee for Public Safety. There will be two houses of government, executive branch made up of five directors and a legislative branch that they call the house of the council of 500 and around about this time we're kind of in 1795 now there's uh the arrival the supposed arrival just off the coast of france of louis the 18th's brother the comte d'artois the comte d'artois and there's a lot of uh, revived royalist activity, the supporters of the Bourbons and the, versus the constitutionalists, as they're known. The leader of which is Paul Barat. Barat well, sure. Is, go, yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, there's, there's, there, there is, as you say, a, a, a great deal uh, going on. Paris is really in turmoil. Uh, let, let's just back up just for a little bit to, to sort of... Uh, Give give people a sense of what what life was like. As you say, the convention uh, had not really uh, been uh, very successful. Uh, the convention was a a middle class government designed to promote essentially business interests and so on. And uh, uh, they they tried to to take care of the economic problems of the day, but but it simply wasn't working. Uh, many of the problems that had led to the revolution, uh, bread riots, a shortage of food in general, a growing gap between the rich and poor, uh, all of these things were, were just getting worse uh, under the convention. And, and there was a lot of uh, uh, turmoil in the streets as well. You had this group uh, known as the, the Gilded Youth or the Jeunesse Dorée, uh, gangs of of rather natally dressed thugs, I, I really think is the best way uh, to describe them, uh, and uh, they they were running around acting like they were important, uh, beating up uh, any any of the old Jacobines that they happened to come across, uh, uh, generally making themselves uh, obnoxious. Uh, but you also have a right-wing, a, a, a vast right-wing conspiracy, as it were. You have the royalist uh, backlash against the, the, the government. And in time, many of these uh, uh, jeunesse dorées uh, actually became uh, supporters of uh, royalist opportunities. And when in June of that year, you know, the young... Uh, Son of Louis the Sixteenth. Remember that Louis the Sixteenth and Marie Antoinette had two uh, two kids who were tossed into prison. Uh, well, their son, 
who would have been Louis the 17th, uh, had died. And so, as you point out, rightly, the Comte d'Artois, uh, who was uh, uh, Louis the 16th's brother, uh, declares rather prematurely that he is now going to be Louis the 18th. Uh, well, this this really uh, brings on a, a great divide. This this really makes Paris a city of, of two extremes. Those people who are saying, yes, vive le roi, let's bring back the king, long live the king. And those people who were saying, not on your life, fellas, we have got to find some way to defend this government, however inept it may be, uh, from uh, this uh, royalist uh, uh, threat. And and so you get in, by October, you have the Council of 500 and the Council of Ancients uh, and the Directory uh, really in a tither. Uh, they are very concerned not only that the government might fall, but that they uh, might be uh, physically attacked by a lot of these insurgents who are uh, by now rather uh, heavily armed, uh, led by some of the members of the of the Guard Nacional, the National Guard, uh, and as you said, I think uh, the convention uh, asks one of the directors, our, our old friend Paul Barra. Who, who had a lot to do with Napoleon either getting into or out of uh, prison uh, a couple of years earlier. Uh, Paul Barat is put in charge of the defense of the government. Paul Barat has no military background at all, doesn't have a clue how to defend the government, but he does know and is smart enough to come up with a good general. And there were several generals that were actually uh, possibilities and it's a little unclear exactly how Napoleon ends up getting the offer. Uh, the, the classic story is Barak calls him in and says, will you take command of the, of, of the defense of the government? You have three minutes to decide. Uh, that may or may not be the way it happened, but it's as good a, a version as any. Napoleon, of course, does decide that he is willing to do this. And, and notice the change. Uh, earlier, he had not wanted to go to the Vendee for fear of having to fire on uh, French citizens. But now he is willing to deal with this uh, in defense of, of the government. And that was a risk that he was going to take. Because if it went the other way, he might very well have uh, been in trouble. Uh, but... You've got royalists, you've got anarchists, you've got uh, members of the National Guard who are now guilty of treason because they are uh, arming themselves to try to overthrow the government. So if you're going to fire on French citizens, that's probably a pretty good group to, uh, to, to choose. But it also smacks of opportunism, doesn't it? I mean, you have he's Napoleon coming <coughs> to the position of being a brigadier general, having lost his sponsors, the Robespierres, uh, a year or so earlier, he now has one of the guys who's very, very high up in the new government of France, Paul Barat, who's in control of the, you know, the army defending the government. He, he gives Napoleon this opportunity. Napoleon, obviously very, very quick-witted, very, very intelligent, understands that strategically, in terms of his personal career opportunities, this was a major moment. If he if he performed well in this situation, it was going to be uh, you know it was going to open a lot of doors and really promote 
his star, really promote his reputation uh, amongst the, the men that mattered. And as you say, he was given three minutes to decide, according to the story by Barah. He replies, yes, where are the guns? Well, yeah, you know, and, and when you say opportunistic to, to, to some, that will 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 be uh, negative have negative uh, overtones or negative connotations uh just like when you say somebody is ambitious uh some folks see that in a negative way whereas others say well well yes you want someone who's ambitious and napoleon was clearly ambitious and clearly wanted to do something that would further his career uh but he's also taking a risk and he's he's running the risk of course that, that his side will lose uh, and, and in which case he's going to be in very, very serious trouble. And the risk he's taking is to defend the government that he is sworn as a, as a uh, officer, as a general, uh, sworn to defend. So I don't know that I would use the word opportunistic uh, when you simply agree to do uh, what to at least some extent you have sworn to do, and that is to defend your your nation. But but opportunistic or ambitious or being in the right place at the right time or or, or whatever the case may be from the standpoint of Napoleon's career, there can be no doubt that this was very good news uh, for the convention, uh, for the the directory. Uh, Napoleon is uh, an absolute whirlwind. He's technically the number two in command, uh, but Barat pretty much is willing to have have Napoleon do uh, you know whatever he wants to. Uh, Napoleon actually arms the convention and says, "Listen, guys, if they if the bad guys start coming through the windows, you know, point the thing that way and pull this trigger." Uh, and that's about <laughs> that's about as much as some of them probably knew uh, about how to use this stuff. But but I mean these guys were scared to death they, they they really thought the end might very well be near uh for them uh, personally not just their government well they were, uh, massively, they were massively outnumbered as well there was something like thirty thousand rebels and the government had something like five thousand troops plus another three thousand militia but you know they were massively outnumbered and it oh yeah they were they were outnumbered by about six to one like you say and and the only the only equalizer they had would be artillery. If there's one thing that can make a small group equal to a large group, it's to have the heavy guns. But the heavy guns were six miles away, and both sides knew where they were. So so the race is going to be on. And he grabs a young captain named Hokiem Mura, uh, later to be a marshal of France, uh, later to be his brother-in-law and so on. Uh, and he says, take this detachment of cavalry, and Murat will eventually be the greatest cavalry leader uh, of the 19th century, by the way. Uh, go get these guns now, quickly, thank you very much, and bring them here uh, in about five minutes. And of course, it was going to be a lot more than five minutes, but go get them now. I needed them yesterday. Uh, and Murat is up to the challenge. He, he races uh, that six miles. Uh, he gets there actually just before the insurgents, just before the, the bad guys, if you will, get there. There's a bit of a standoff, uh, but Murat has the cavalry. And, and these guys were, were, were not, not going to match the Murat's cavalry. They disperse. Murat grabs the guns and, and, uh, they, about 40 of them, if I recall, and, and they, uh, show up early on the uh, 5th of October, uh, and are put into place, uh, where they can control the streets, 
leading to uh, the the convention, leading to the government, the Tuileries, uh, which was you know the, the the house of the government. So he, he basically exactly the the, the Tuileries Palace, there, there was which is no longer there. And there's, there was, you know, a, a handful of streets by which the rebels could reach this building. He basically put some cannon in each of those streets, and the cannon was loaded with what was known as grape shot. Now, I, I, I'm obviously familiar with the term grape shot, but until I was preparing the notes for this, I'd never actually researched, well, what is grape shot? So I went and looked it up on Wikipedia, and it says... Grape shot was a kind of anti-personnel ammunition used in cannons. Instead of solid shot, a mass of loosely packed metal slugs is loaded into a canvas bag. The assembly of balls resembles a cluster of grapes, hence the name. On firing, the balls spread out from the muzzle at high velocity, giving an effect similar to a shotgun, but scaled up to cannon size. So this is what he had in the cannons, uh, you know, protecting the, the seat of government as the rebels... Attack. Well, that's that's exactly right. Uh, these are, in effect, enormous, uh, powerful shotguns. Uh, grape shot is extremely useful against large groups of soldiers or, or of any people that are massed together. It's not nearly as effective uh, against an enemy that is more spread out or has some kind of cover, uh, but against the kind of situation that you have in, in, uh, in, in Paris right now where the insurgents are going to be coming down the streets, it's perfect. And it's, as I said earlier, it's the great equalizer. The much smaller army of Napoleon now has the the secret weapon, uh, the the street sweeper in the modern vernacular, uh, that will equalize them, and it does a hell of a good job. Uh, I never having gone against uh, something like this, I was in Vietnam, but we never had anything quite like that to face. Uh, it's it's hard to for anyone, I think, to imagine what it must be like. What I am always amazed. Is, is 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 when I read that they fire grape shot, but but they they keep coming. You know, the insurgents just keep coming, and they're they're charging into uh, this wall of fire, uh, and and you just really have to wonder how that could could be. It it reminds me a little bit of, of the D-Day invasions where. You know the the Germans had the entrenched positions with the machine guns, and 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 yet the 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 Allies were able ultimately to take the beaches because they just put people on the beach faster than the Germans could could kill them. Uh, it could work the other way this time. The the insurgents could not put more people on the street faster uh, than Napoleon could kill them. And so, in about 15 or 20 minutes, uh, it became pretty doggone clear that they simply didn't have the overwhelming numbers that they needed. Now, remember, they outnumbered Napoleon's forces six to one, but because of the grape shot, because of the heavy guns, that was not a big enough margin. And so, they began to to uh, slink away. Uh, some of them make a last stand a few blocks away at the church of San Roque, uh, uh, and and there's some some fighting, and and then the, the guns are moved and put into place, and and it's really pretty much all over. You can you can go to San Roque today, 
uh, and and you can see uh, the pot marks where where the cannon and, and, and the muskets were were fired. Anyway, uh, it's all over uh, by six o'clock in the evening. Uh, you look at the numbers, and, and I said I was just amazed at how they could keep coming. I'm also amazed at how relatively small the uh, number of people were killed. Uh, the, the best number that I can come up with is somewhere around 400. Now, you never know just how accurate some of these numbers are going to be. Uh, nevertheless, for going up against that sort of thing, uh, a total casualty rate of somewhere around 400 uh, is, is, is really uh, amazing. But, all things said, Napoleon was clearly the man of the hour. No one doubted for a moment that it was Napoleon's genius, leadership, courage, you name it, that had saved the government. And so for the second time in a couple of years, he was to become a national hero. Now, this uh, period in, uh, in the history of the revolution, in the history of the, the empire, is known as Voldemort because of the, the month under the, the naming system post-revolution. But this particular period is known as the whiff of grape shot. Now, where does that term, the whiff of grape shot, come from? Well, we, we've already discussed the uh, grape shot, and I, uh, I, I think that Napoleon is maybe supposed to have said, and I'm not so sure uh, that he did, uh, this, this may be something that was made up after the fact, but he's supposed to have said, well, we, we, will, we will give them a whiff of grape shot, as in just a, a little quick shot of the stuff, and that will disperse it. Well, it took more than a whiff, in fact, it, but... It, it still, it, it was very effective, uh, and and after a number of rounds uh, uh, were fired, uh, the insurgents were were defeated. And he but whiff of grape shot makes it sound like it was a, a little bit easier than it was. <laughs> but it's a, it's obviously a, um, a pivotal moment, another one of these pivotal moments in Napoleon's career, and oh, it sure. completely broke the back of the royalists at the time Paris, it was the last time Paris really had to face down that kind of civil unrest and uh, Barat gave a speech to the convention not long after that, after he was named as one of the five directors of the executive branch of the government saying, the republic has been saved citizen representatives, don't forget that General Buonaparte, who had only the morning of the 13th to make his clever and highly successful arrangements had been posted from the artillery to the infantry, founders of the republic, will you delay any longer to right the wrongs to which in your name many of its defenders have been subjected so he is obviously uh, back he is back baby Oh, absolutely. He's the hero of the day. Uh, uh, Barat, Freron, others uh, give speeches. Uh, meanwhile, old Comte d'Artois shows his cowardly uh, uh, colors. You know, uh, the, his, his insurgents in Paris are dealt a, a blow. Uh, but instead of trying to rally his supporters in the countryside in a full-fledged effort, he slinks back out of the country and, and uh, decides to uh, stay in exile a while longer. Doesn't do his own image any good. Uh, this, of course, completely disheartens the the royalists, not just in Paris, where a lot of them have been shot up, but all across the country. Uh, the royalist cause 
really sinks to a very, very low ebb, and you're not going to see a whole lot of, of, of royalists until you get toward the end of Napoleon's career when, when they, uh, somewhat opportunistically, I suppose, begin to, to smell the possibility of, of, of eliminating Napoleon and bringing back the king. There was also, as we'll see later on, a brief period where they thought Napoleon might actually uh, be on their side, but they would be soon disavowed of that, uh, uh, dissuaded of that idea. So he, uh, he is now, uh, Napoleon is, is now appoints Barat commander of the Army of the Interior and makes Napoleon second in command of the entire Army of the Interior. Uh, Barat's a politician. He's not really in command of anything. Uh, so Napoleon, in fact, has this enormous jump-starting uh, career move. And, and he's once again, as you say, he's back, baby. Uh, no question about it. And he's now 26 years old. He is a full general commanding the Army of the Interior, which I believe at the time was uh, the largest army in France. Well, it, it, it was. And, and in fact, I, I, I hasten to add that not very much uh, after he was second in command, uh, Paul Barat becomes the, the, uh, one of the members of the, of the new directory, which is the new executive branch of government. And he cannot maintain a military position. He can't be commander. And so now uh, Napoleon is in fact at age 26. He is the general of division, commander of the army of the interior. Uh, now is where he changes his Italian, the spelling of his name from the Italian uh, to the French, uh, from Buonaparte to Bonaparte. Uh, and and he's he's really in great shape now. He's got money. You you and I had talked earlier about what. Well, he was, he's a general. He must be doing okay. Well, he's really doing okay now. He's got a big salary. He's got a home. You know, the the commanding general is given given a home. Uh, he's now able to send his mother money. Uh, he gives various positions to his family. Uh, Joseph becomes the consul in Italy. Uh, Lucien is an army commissioner. Uh, his brother Louis uh, will, will be, becomes uh, his, his personal aide de camp. Uh, he cannot walk down the street without being recognized. People will cheer. He goes into the opera, and the music will stop, and 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 they will everybody turn and applaud uh, this this uh, brilliant long, young general. general. Uh, he, he is now even more than before uh, invited to the salons of the very most powerful people in, in, in all of Paris and he's no longer obscure he's no longer afraid to, to be seen as a hero he, he really feels that his side has won he has won and that his career is now really uh, going to take off and surprise surprise he's right <laughs> so he's 26 years old commander of the largest army uh, belonging to France at the time but not only does Paul Barat give him the gift of you know being uh, from a career perspective he also introduces him to one of his current or former mistresses a lady by the name of Marie-Joseph Rose Tasha de la Pagerie, or Madame de Bohane, as she is known after her first marriage. Her husband, uh, Alexander de Bohane, had been guillotined during the, the revolution, during the terror. 
And uh, she is better known, though, to history by Napoleon's nickname for her, which was Josephine. And I think we're going to see that in the next episode. I think so. I think that'll be a very good place uh, to start. We can talk a little bit about some of Napoleon's earlier loves. Uh, Napoleon had a very mixed uh, record uh, when it came to his love life, uh, but we'll talk a little bit about a few of them, including the most famous Desiree Claire, uh, and, and of course Josephine, who is in her own right a fascinating woman. Uh, both good news and bad news for Napoleon, uh, a woman of charm and grace and beauty, and a woman who could not be trusted, <laughs> all wrapped up into one. And and I think it'll be a, a wonderful episode, and we'll talk about uh, that, and we can talk about Napoleon's uh, first foray into uh, northern Italy. Uh, there's just so much, and it's going to be this way, my friends, all all the way through. Every, every time you you think we've had a good episode, we've covered some neat stuff. The next episode is going to be at least as good. And we thought this was going to be a short episode because we we're only covering a 12 month period, but we've we've gone almost an hour just with that short amount of, to talk about. Well, you 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 managed to come across a. F- Fairly long-winded historian, I fear. <laughs> well, it was a pleasure having you on the line again, David. I, I highly recommend anyone who's listening to this and uh, can't wait for the next episode go out and pick themselves up a copy of your book, Napoleon for Dummies, which uh, I acquired myself just in the last couple of weeks, and I've been thoroughly enjoying it. You've done an excellent job. Well, thank you very much. I'm I'm proud of it. I think if someone out there has never read a book on Napoleon, that would be an excellent first book. We'll put a link to it up in the show notes for this show too, so people can pick it up from Amazon. And uh, until next time, David Markham, thank you very much. I hope you stay well, and I'll talk to you again as we go into Episode 4 of Napoleon the Podcast. As always, my friend, it's a great pleasure. See you next time. Real power can't be given. It must be taken.